This is MP Voices. I'm your host, Steve McLaughlin. In this episode, we'll review the next generation of American Giving Report with Pam Loeb from Edge Research and Mark Robner with C-Chain Strategies. Author and consultant Erica Wasdorp stops by to talk about building a monthly giving program. And Jeff Brooks with TrueSense Marketing shares his tips and tricks to improve your direct marketing performance. That's all next on MP Voices. Pam Loeb with Edge Research and Mark Robner with Sea Chain Strategies now join the show to talk about the brand new next generation of American Giving Report. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Maybe a good place to start is let's talk a little bit about the report, some of the key findings. Uh, what did you find in this latest edition of the next generation of American Giving Report? Well, one thing that's important to note is that it's a data point in a flow of research that's been going on at least since 2008 when we sat down with some of your colleagues, Steve and Edge and and C-Change, and decided, you know, maybe we could cut through some of the theorizing about what donors think and what donors want by actually asking the donors what they think and what they want. And the first study came out in 2008, which disproved the myth that rich people are not online. And then... The first of the generation studies came out in 2010, looking at generational differences in terms of giving, in terms of charitable habits, in terms of priorities. And in 2013, the one we're, we're releasing is, it really builds on that and updates our findings and introduces some new findings and solidifies some trends that we spotted in 2010. Yeah, let me just add in a quick note about methodology because there's always some questions about how the survey was conducted and and who was included and who wasn't. We used the same methodology as we used in 2010 so that we could look at changes over time. This was an online survey. We conducted it among adults 18 and over who self-report giving to at least one charity within the last 12 months beyond their school or place of worship. So, you know, just a quick note, surveys are a great way to measure attitudes, measure values, identify trends, but these numbers that are reported are not based on transactional data, they're based on self-reported data. That's helpful because I think oftentimes it's helpful to clarify, here's where the research is coming from, but also to give people a sense of these are trends and patterns we want to follow. Now maybe let's go get some of the hard data that gives us a sense of what's happening. Exactly. What were one or two things that surprised you guys the most about this latest report as opposed to the research you did back in 2010? Let me start by telling you the thing that wasn't a surprise because it's something that really came out of the report in 2010 and everyone ignored it, which is that boomers have fully taken the reins of the generation before as the primary source of charitable giving and will remain the primary source of charitable giving for the foreseeable future. And that was true in the 2010 study and it's even more true now. And so ought to be the, the number one generational objective for almost every organization out there. One thing that was surprising, you know, we've seen online fundraising slowly tick up against direct mail in terms of, of dollars, but, but we're still in a place where something more than 90% of, of money is coming from direct mail. One of the things that was interesting about the study is among the baby boomers, they were as likely to say they had given by given online as they were to say they've 
they've given by direct mail. So there's some evidence that baby boomers are, could very well be the transition generation and maybe the last generation for which direct mail is going to do the heavy lift. And Pam, what were some of the things you found that were of interest, given that you've really deep into the data and looking at what the responses were? Well, we, we did ask some new questions this time around to really drill down on some of the findings from 2010 and just, you know, what we're seeing in our research and what we're hearing from our clients. So, for instance, in 2010, a lot of donors said that they first became aware of their top charity through their job. So we asked some additional questions following up on this around workplace giving, and we see some interesting differences by generation. Gen Y and X are a lot more likely to kind of blur the lines between work and their personal life. They're more likely to engage in charitable activity through work by volunteering, by participating in peer-to-peer activities like walks and runs, whereas boomers are a lot more interested in just giving through a payroll deduction and, and not kind of getting active through their work. The other thing that we added into this study was some questions around crowdfunding. You know, this is a relative newcomer to the fundraising space. We wanted to get a read and see if it was even on donors' radars. And, you know, not so much, but there are some generational differences. 17% of Gen Y donors reported giving to a crowdfunding campaign, and about half are interested in doing so in the future. And it makes sense. It will kind of aligns with their values. It's cool. It's social. It creates a direct link between the gift and a charitable outcome. Interest really diminishes in uh, crowdfunding by generation, but I think that's because awareness of crowdfunding diminishes by generation. So those were a couple of new things that we added in. Obviously, we know for a number of years, everyone's been talking about the importance of engaging with Gen Xers, Gen Y, millennial donors. And this report, again, starts to shed some new light into their preferences, things that they care about, things that they don't care about. As we see this shift of nonprofits wanting to engage more of these types of donors, what are some takeaways people could get from the report that would be helpful? The first thing, and this is my unending rant, is stop obsessing about them because that's not where most of your money is going to come from. I've just been in about 100 too many meetings where there was a lot of hand-wringing because our donors are all old. If your donors are 80, I would worry about them dying off. If your donors are 60, you're probably in the sweet spot of giving. So one, don't go chasing the smaller pots of money right now. However, since they are giving, they're not giving nothing. There are some attitudinal differences that really jumped out, one of which is there's a much higher expectation among Gen Xers and Gen Ys about getting concrete information about where their money is going, how it's making a difference. They're going way beyond the, oh, 90% of every dollar goes to goes to our program. They really want to know what's the straight line between the dollar they put in the Internet and some concrete outcome that makes the world a better place. And, and I, think, I think that is something that our organizations are going to have to take seriously. Another thing that I think was really interesting were some of the differences around uh, some, some of the findings around word of mouth. You know, many charitable organizations talk about word of mouth as if it's the holy grail, and it is really important. The reality is that different generations have a very different view of sharing their philanthropic interests. So, you know, Gen Y, we saw in this study, is twice as likely as the mature generation to think that spreading the word makes a difference. Two-thirds of Gen Y are comfortable talking about the charities they support versus less than half of boomers and matures. And I think not surprising to anybody 
they're five times more likely to follow a charity on social media or share information on Facebook. So I think we're seeing kind of a, a, a difference in philosophy and attitude. You know, boomers and matures kind of give, but give quietly, whereas Gen Y is more likely to think, you know, it didn't happen, they don't tell everybody about it. And for somebody like me who measures brand health for different charitable organizations, this kind of makes us reconsider the way that we're asking those questions and, and monitoring and measuring those uh, attitudes and values. Yeah, it's a really good point that obviously you have different demographic groups and, and age groups that think differently about charity, but also we're in this age of sharing and in some cases oversharing. <laughs> and and so that doesn't surprise us that we would see that show up. But Mark, back to your point about the a lot of organizations fretting about the fact that but we only have really old donors, and so you keep telling us about this fountain of youth that we need to be chasing. I think, like you said, the focus for a lot of nonprofits should be on proportional prioritization. <laughs> that, yes, you, you do need to pay attention to Xers and, and millennials, but in direct proportion to your fundraising program. Because if you did a 180 and only focused on them, you'd be in big trouble because it's not where the the vast majority where the dollars are going to come from today tomorrow and in the future yes but you you've got to you've got to live with the ebbs and flows of life if you will and i would build on that and say and and this is going to cause real pain to people who live and die by spreadsheets you are not going to get an immediate return on your investment in Gen X's and Gen Y's. You, you may, this is something Pam rightly points out, you may establish the relationship and the brand identity that's going to lead to a, to a very valuable giving relationship in 15 years, but you're not going to see it this year, and you're probably not going to see it next year. It's probably investment you ought to be making. And you also need to be nimble. You know, there are a lot of stories coming out now about how Gen Xers, 10, 15 years ago, everyone's saying, oh, they're the generation, they believe in anything, blah, 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 and, and now they're solid citizens, and, and now we're maligning the Gen Ys the same way. So, you know, for people who are in their 20s and 30s, it's a moving target. Their worldviews are, are in flux, their values are in flux. Working with stereotypes of who they are is not going to raise money. Yeah, as most of us can attest, we're probably not the same people we were when we were 18 and 20. Most of us usually mature with, with time, like a fine wine or something. So Yeah, don't ask my wife about that. She might have a <laughs> Pam, to Mark's point about that, about investing in the awareness and the brand side because you're building that long-term relationship, how do you recommend that nonprofits think about that or make the internal case for we do need to invest even if it is on the initial engagement or awareness side? I think one of the things Mark was alluding to was some in 2010 we spent a lot of time trying to kind of crack the nut around first engagement and how people start to build a relationship with the charitable organization that's most important to them. And the majority of boomers and matures report that they first learned about that most important charity, the one that they're most loyal to, in their 30s. So it is important to start kind of building brand awareness with younger generations. You know, they will be your loyal and larger donors over time. 
know, a couple of, I talked a little bit about workplace giving as a way to get on younger donors, radar screens. I think the other thing that we saw in this report was that retail giving is a lot more prevalent with Gen Y and Gen X. And I think there's kind of a what's in it for me phenomenon going on there. You know, you buy a product that you like, but it also supports a cause that you care about. And then the other thing that we see Gen Y and Gen X just doing in greater numbers than older generations is participating in peer-to-peer fundraising. So walks and runs and and fundraising events. And again, I think that, you know, it's a way to connect with them face-to-face and it's also a way for them to feel as if they're making a difference, not just writing a check. Pam and Mark, really appreciate you being on MP Voices and sharing your perspectives on the new report. It's great stuff. You should read it. You can find the Next Generation of American Giving Report at www.blackbaud.com slash nextgen. Erica Wasdorp is the author of Monthly Giving, The Sleeping Giant, How Small Gifts Can Be Powerful Tools to Support Any Organization. Thanks for joining the show, Erica. You're welcome. You've spent a lot of years and a lot of time focusing on building monthly giving programs for nonprofit organizations. Maybe a good place to start is, why is monthly giving such a powerful tool for nonprofit organizations as opposed to other fundraising programs they may be running? Well, I think one of the reasons is monthly givers are typically smaller donors, so they can contribute uh, $5 a month, $10 a month, and on a regular basis, and they actually really contribute to the organization, but especially in this day and age with like a lot of recession, people you know don't have a lot of money, they want to support a lot of organizations, this is a great way to make a difference for them, and it's also easy, they can't forget it, it's, you know, it's just a great way to give. I think one of the reasons why a lot of donors in the U.S. are lagging in this giving is because, you know, people here are not comfortable giving out bank information. It's just not part of the culture. They're comfortable giving out their credit card information, but not their bank. And if you look at what happens in, in Europe and even Canada and Australia, a lot of you know donors there are very comfortable giving out their bank information. And it's, it's just sort of like a second nature. That's just a part of their culture. So that in the U.S. has really been behind in, in the curve, but they're catching up because they find that with a lot more donors now comfortable with online banking, with online giving, it's it's they're much more comfortable with, you know, giving out their information and, and trusting the systems, if you will. So I think that's been a, a huge factor. And I think the other thing is that nonprofits, commercial entities like utility companies, have also really started pushing the monthly payment systems. So people have really become much more comfortable with the overall concept of doing things on a regular basis through their credit card or through their bank account. So like you said, giving pretty much in the rest of the world, the the notion of monthly giving is very much ingrained in the culture of donating, whereas in the U.S. it hasn't been that way. So one of the things I think you've suggested is, with the growth of more online banking, people doing more automatic payments, those types of things. Do you get the sense that the, the typical U.S. donors are growing more comfortable with this way, with this sort of mechanism of giving, if you will? 
yes, I would definitely think that they are becoming much more comfortable with that. I mean, if you look at the bulk of the organizations that have a monthly giving program, many of those actually have a huge credit card, you know, monthly giving program, because that's really almost the easiest way to build a program. And and the uh, you know the EFT electronic funds transfer where the donor rises the organization to give like take money out of their bank account is still somewhat lagging behind unless they are really well known with the organization, they're very comfortable with it and, and they've been giving to that organization for a longer period of time. I mean at least that's what I've been seeing in um, in monthly giving here. And maybe another way for nonprofits to think about it is to focus less so much on the the method of the transaction, whether it was a check or cash or debit card or direct debit, but more on the frequency of giving and sort of the way in which a person wants to give to the organization. Don't get hung up on the, the technical details of how the, the actual transaction takes place. Right. That's correct. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's another way of, again, thinking about if you can get somebody to make a five dollar donation every month, that's sixty dollars a year. Well, if you think that you get thirty five dollars from a donor once a year, you know, through your annual appeals, et cetera, then you know this monthly donor becomes actually much more valuable, even though they're only a five dollar donor. So, um, so and I think that's been a mindset as well, where you know, so much in in fundraising in, in the U.S. I think is is focused on major gifts. You know, trying to upgrade donors, so and and not so much like that. That small, those smaller level donors that you can actually bring to a mid level or even a major donor by virtue of asking them to to give small amounts on a on a regular basis. And that would be true unless you knew that it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> that you know, where do major donors come from, or where do significant gifts come from? And statistically speaking, they come from people who've been giving to the organization for multiple years. And so, for a lot of organizations, their transitional donor, planned gift donor, major donor is coming out of their monthly giving campaign or monthly giving program, because that person already has a lot of not only affinity to the organization, but they've been giving for quite some time, and that's a really important characteristic. You also touched on this idea of using monthly giving programs as a way to improve the long-term value of your donors as opposed to maybe a traditional single gift annual fund program. Could you talk a little bit more about some of the, the statistics and, and the economics about a monthly giving program as opposed to other fundraising programs? Well, I mean, you know, it, it all depends, obviously. If you look at organizations that have had programs running for a while, I mean, you know, I work with one organization. They've been, you know, they've been doing this monthly giving program for about 15 years, and there are still donors that have actually been given for 15 years that way. And we've been able to even upgrade them throughout the years, and, and uh, so, but they're still giving that way. And their lifetime value is, is huge. I mean, you're talking like close to $1,000, you know, over, over like, you know, some, some groups. I just looked at it like it was like eight years ago. I mean, now they're worth like $900, you know, so, so that's huge from like the simple like small ten dollar giver that originally came on and and the the other part is like they still make additional gifts to 
uh, appeals that you send them because again like you said they are really loyal donors they care about the organization they're committed to the organization so they will read your mail they will you know give another gift if you ask them to do that so they're really your best group and then what we've found is that a lot of these donors then leave the organization in their will so they may not necessarily have you know a million dollars to give away but they have saved up over the years and all of a sudden you might get like a nice 20 or 30,000 50,000 dollar bequest that you know comes from a 5 dollar a month donor. Now, as we all know with anything new, the hardest part is often getting started. And I know with some organizations, they say we'll start a monthly giving program as soon as we get those first few monthly gifts and it doesn't really kind of work that way. If you were talking to a not-for-profit organization that was considering starting a monthly giving program, what are the two or three key first steps they need to take to successfully get a program off the ground? Well, I think first of all, they need to, you know, if they want to get started, they really need to make that commitment. And not say, oh, I'm going to just test it and and see what happens. And then, oh, it didn't work. So, yeah, that was it. We tested it once and never again. You really have to say, look, let's just, like, work on this for at least a couple of years and see how we can really grow this program. You, You need to commit. The other thing is, I mean, I recommend coming up with a name for the program. Actually, I think in the U.S., people do like to feel special. They do like to get special recognition. They want to become a part of a special group. And if you have a name of this uh, this multi-giving program, that's a great way to make them feel special and recognize them. And you can keep it very simple. I mean, you can keep it as a sustainer circle or a multi-giving circle, or depending upon your mission of the organization, you can, you know, become more or targeted and you, you can make it, uh, you know, a champion for animals or you can make it uh, a guardian or you can make it a, uh, a partner or, or, you know, anything like that. But I think the thing is, you just brainstorm. I mean, I mean, I see so many organizations that they're like, yeah, we've been talking about this monthly giving program and we just can't figure out what we want to call it. So weeks go by, months go by, and they don't get started because they can't figure it out. And it's like, well, just don't fret about it. Just say, we'll brainstorm about it, we'll run it by a couple people, what do you think about this name, does it sound good, does it, you know, how do we use it in a sentence, yes, you're, you know, if you're willing to join this monthly giving circle, blah, 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 you know, so, and then just say, that's it, and we'll move it on to actually getting started, so, so the name is, is important. I think the other thing is, with credit cards, you can get started pretty quickly, can, you know, do an email appeal with a link to website to recurring giving option that's part of your credit card payment process, for instance, that you, you know, like you, you just have to set that up, but it's very easy to do. And a lot of other credit card, you know, processing systems have recurring giving options. You sometimes just have to activate it. So it takes a little bit of IT focus, but it's, it's, uh, it can be done. So, so email is a great way to get started, and it's basically like the cheapest way. But there are so, a lot of media that you can use to uh, build a monthly giving program. And again, it all depends on your budget. It all depends on you know, what you're willing to do and, and what you're already doing. So where would a, a special appeal to ask a donor to become a monthly donor fit? I mean, if you're already mailing 24 times a year, it may be hard to do it as a special mailing. But maybe you could take a version of your house file mailing, if your house appeal, 
and and make a version to a, a very targeted group of donors that asks them to join the monthly giving program. But there's a you know like there's a lot of different ways to, to reach out and start with the monthly giving program. Erica, this is all really helpful advice. Appreciate you joining MP Voices. You're welcome. Jeff Brooks with True Sense Marketing now joins the show. Welcome to NP Voices, Jeff. Hi, Steve. Good to be here. Now, lately on your Future Fundraising Now blog, you've been talking a lot about testing, and I wanted to dig into that a little bit more. Everybody says you should test you know, your email, your direct mail, all those types of things. But are there some instances where testing can be a total waste of time and not worth the effort? Yeah. There's, there's unfortunately, a lot of ways that, that testing doesn't help you at all. On the other hand, testing is it's the it's what makes us know what we're doing. I think the biggest downside to testing is that most nonprofit organizations can't do it because they don't have the quantity of emails or, or direct mail records to do it. They simply they simply won't get statistically repeatable results. You're not sending it off to enough people, monitoring it closely to sort of get any real critical mass in the data. Right, and, and basically with a small file. It's all noise. There's no signal. It's just noise. So, uh, what you one thing one thing you want to make sure you do with testing is get someone who's good enough with math and statistics to help you understand whether you're at a statistically valid level. And now you could, you know, theoretically, you could have a really small file and do a test and get get a sample because it's so such an astoundingly big difference between your two panels. Mm-hmm. You know, then it would work. Just that it becomes the smaller your sample size, the less likely that is to happen. I think what what happens to a lot of organizations is they'll test something and they'll get you know more results on one panel than the other and they'll say well there's the truth and then it turns out well it doesn't actually repeat because it, it was it was noise not signal so that's the big problem you know we who work with large organizations we talk about testing and how important it is and how you do really don't know anything until you've tested it and then 90 percent of organizations they simply can't do what we say so what i what i often tell people is Watch what the large organizations are doing. Read the blogs, read books, and then copy that stuff because that is based on testing with large sample sizes that's getting valid results. Be a fast follower in some ways. Exactly, yeah. I know files are different. Sometimes they're surprisingly different, but you should start with the assumption that your file is typical and like others. And maybe the the organizations you copy would be the ones that are most like you. But, you know, I hear a lot from organizations, oh, our, our donors are totally different. What, you know, what happens out there in the rest of the world just won't happen here. And that's usually not true. Files are, are unique and different, but they're not that different from each other. Yeah, you're still dealing with the human population on planet Earth. We're, yeah. we're 99% the same. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you get into radical differences where, you know, I've seen some organizations where it's a wildlife organization that skews towards a male population because it may involve hunters and fishermen. Okay, you may be, your file may be different, but everybody else, you're probably very much the same. Yeah, yeah. And again, that's just a smarter starting point is that we're like others, not unlike others. And part of this, too, also goes into what you're testing, right? That we're not talking about did white paper perform better than beige paper, (laughs) those sort of silly things. But I think sometimes people get tripped up between the difference between A-B testing, multivariate testing, or just like what would I test if I could test, you know, if I had the volume. If you are mailing in the millions, you can test white 
paper versus beige paper and very possibly get a result that you can read. But even then, I'm, I probably wouldn't waste my time on that particular type of test uh, because it doesn't make that much difference. What you ought to be testing are offers, that is the calls to action, the way your outer envelope looks in direct mail or your subject line in email, and then basic construction of a direct mail kit and the way landing pages and so forth work online. Those are the big deals. That's where the levers are that matter. Yeah, doing little things like, is, is a red headline better than a blue headline? Uh, it's kind of not worth your time. The other thing you've been talking about as well is the way in which you're telling your story and who the hero in the story is also makes a huge difference. That you may be testing something that's just bad copy to begin with, that it can't be improved. You're not going to see, you're telling the wrong story, therefore you are going to get bad results whether you try it five different ways. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. I had, a, I had a mentor at one time who said, good creative can't save a bad offer, but bad creative can kill a good offer. <laughs> I know. Offer does matter a lot more than creative. So, again, that's why I say it's, it's hard to test one story from another. You're going to tend to get smaller differences between two types of story. But very often when you have the story right, it's because you also have a good call to action. It's, it's, like that, it's that combination good. factor, right? Yeah, it is. It is. And if you have your act together on one, you probably have it together on the other. But you see it all the time. You see controls that have been mailing for years, and they're just kind of crummy. But it's because they have really nailed down the call to action, and they have a good match with the audience they're going to. So, you know, uh, you can test it. They would do better if they had better creative, but, it, you know, it's probably not on their radar to be better because they're good enough for them, you know, for their purposes. And I know you also have been blogging about how there's also certain types of testing that makes you dumber, not smarter, no matter what you do, right? Yeah, and that would be cases where you haven't, you went out with a test and you didn't have a clear hypothesis what you were testing. I see this a lot with image testing. When you test a photo, you are testing a lot of stuff. You're testing, you know, the size of it, the placement of it, the emotional sense that the photo gives you, the way it matches with everything else in the in the uh, communication. So when you, you know, you test photo A against photo B and photo A does better, all you have learned is that photo A did better than photo B. You didn't learn that this class of photos did better than that class of photos. But very often I see people making large leaps like that. They thought they were testing photos of happy people versus photos of sad people. No, it just happened to be that happy person in that one instance did better than the sad person. But not all happy people will do better. Right. In fact, across... Big picture, sad people are going to do better. But it's very easy for a sad photo to have something else wrong with it that shot it down and that you didn't know. Photos are really difficult, sticky area because there's so much happening. One I see a lot is very often um, hungry children, when they are hungry and sick, they kind of look like they're scowling at you. It's just a face they make when they feel that way. They aren't scowling at you. They're just they're sick, basically. And there, but there are a lot of photos of suffering children where they just look angry, and that's not good for fundraising. Somebody looking at you, you know, looking you in the eye and looking angry—that's that hurts fundraising. And I've seen a lot of tests where people said, "Ah, photos of suffering people don't work." They turn they turn people away. Well, it wasn't the fact that they were suffering; it was the fact that they looked like they were muttering under the breath, "What an idiot you are." And things like mobile complicate this even more, right? Because on a mobile device, how you see the photo, whether you see the photo, the dimensions, like you said, all these things are then, it gets just a lot more complicated because of the device that you're using. Yeah. Well, on mobile, 
very often the active ingredient of the photo might not be visible because it's too small. If you want to test images, you kind of have to have a large program saying, well, if we want to understand the right image, we're going to have to be on a program of testing across a lot of different impacts where we say, you know, here we're going to try this, and then based on those results, we'll try something else. You kind of have to just triangulate your way toward it. One of the ones that always interests me is that in direct mail, a blank outer envelope almost, almost always beats any kind of teaser you put out there. <laughs> so this goes into, like like you said, there seems to be some tribal knowledge about what works and what doesn't, but you found things that clearly do work and don't work, and someone doesn't need to go a bunch of testing because you've already figured out over years and years, this just happens. Yeah. You'll very often, you know, you'll, you'll see in the blogs and in discussion areas people that kind of have their own eccentric theories of what works and doesn't work, and their their knowledge is, is thin on, on why, and it will usually be they've had one experience Often not even a test, but I did this once and it worked. You really want to listen to people who have been in the business a while and say, well, I've tested that type of thing a lot of times and it usually goes this way. And so, you know, the, the thing with the outer envelope, the go-to thing, if you want to improve a direct mail piece, is to take the teaser off and try it with try it blank. There's a, you know, a statistically high chance that it will do better that way. That's the experience of I've had and everybody who's in the business would, would back me up on that. Now, I, I think what that tells us isn't that blank is better than any teaser. I think what it tells us that most teasers are not very good and that blank is better than a not good teaser. Yeah, that you're not actually fooling anyone with the teaser. It's sort of like the fake forward with email or other tricks. Or my favorite is the membership renewal notice when I was never a member <laughs> to begin with, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's so hard to get right that we can't tell. You know, we're looking at it and we're thinking this is good. And we don't know until the donors tell us, oh, well, sorry, it wasn't. Envelope teasers and email subject lines, for that matter, are just hard to get right. Jeff, this is some really great advice. Appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some of your perspectives. Thank you, Steve. That's it for Episode 9 of NP Voices. I'd like to thank our guests, Pam Loeb, Mark Rovner, Erica Wasdorf, and Jeff Brooks. This episode is brought to you by the letter X. Thanks for listening.